Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 288 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm so excited for a couple of reasons. Number one, we are one week away from the fifth anniversary of this podcast. Yeah, we're almost ready for kindergarten. Like, I don't know, what else do you do when you're five? Uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're, we're going to celebrate because it's been an exceptional journey. And a lot of you have said, just coincidentally over the years, it's like, man, I love this show, but my library budget, like my book budget, gone. So we're going to stack your library. So how to win is to go onto my social channels. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Instagram, Carrie Newhoff. Facebook and Twitter, C. Newhoff. All the links are in the show notes. Just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. You can find everything in there. So what we're going to do is we're going to get nine listeners, five books each. So nine of you are going to get five books of your choice. Just go through any alumni and we will buy you their books. Okay, so that's going to be a lot of fun. We're doing nine listeners because we are at over 9 million downloads after five years, closing in on 10. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. And if this episode means something to you, please do share on social or with a friend. Just text them the link. I know a lot of you use this for team discussion. And there's a lot to discuss today because David Kinneman, who's the president of the Barna Group, is back on the podcast. We sat down just outside of Toronto a couple of weeks ago and had a long freewheeling conversation. Again, so much my heart for this podcast. You know what? I, I used to think as a leader, man, if I could ever have dinner with, if I could ever you know, just for an hour, sit down and pick the brain of Leader X. This is what I would want to ask him. And uh, that's what I did with David. Uh, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. We do talk about some myths that people still widely believe. And if anybody is going to bust some myths about leadership and culture and church, it should be David Kinneman because he has all the research. Plus, we talk about some surprising good news when it comes to faith in the next generation. So all that is ahead in this uh, wide-ranging, fascinating conversation with Barna President uh, David Kinneman. Now, also, a uh, couple of things. I, I am so excited to see what our listeners do. And do you know already, just by, they've only been partners with us for about three months of shows. And in those months alone, churches who've heard about Remodel Health through this podcast have actually put $625,000 back into their ministries. It's insane. Like you guys have saved $625,000 on what? On healthcare. Because overall, Remodel Health, a brand new company, has now helped churches and not-for-profits save $7.2 million on their healthcare. Because sometimes what happens is you look at your healthcare, it's like one, one plan fits all when it doesn't really fit all. You don't really understand all the benefits. Maybe you could do a lot better for your employers. And Remodel Health exists to use technology and their team to help you get the best you can for your healthcare coverage for your staff. So if you're an American church and you're struggling under healthcare costs and you want to do better for your employees and you want to save some of that $7.2 million, this podcast alone, over $600,000 and funnel that back in your ministry, well, you got to check out Remodel Health. So go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry today to download their church buyer's guide for free 
and start saving. So that's remodelhealth forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And you can get their church buyer's guide today. And then um, what's one area that will affect visitors to your church every Sunday and actually on Tuesday and actually Wednesday at 3 a.m. when someone is searching for what's next in their life or God or questions? You know what that is? Your website. Nobody visits a church these days without first visiting the website. So the question is, how you doing on that front? Is it appealing? Updated? Good website? You know, because a good website is going to directly impact how many people you actually reach. That's why our friends at Pro Media Fire are launching a brand new service, Pro Web Fire. It's a subscription service and they're launching it this month. They will build you a custom website and update it weekly. Yeah, weekly as per your plan. They are also including digital outreach and long-term strategies to help reach people online. So listeners of this show will receive a free custom website build for the plan you choose. A free custom church website will help your church grow. It's a pretty amazing launch special. So here's what you need to do. Go to prowebfire.com and use the discount code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, 2019. That's CAREY, 2019. Use that discount code when you head on over to prowebfire.com and get started today. Well, not only do I have this show for you on audio, but we also did some filming. We're doing more and more videos. So I got a YouTube channel as well. If you are of the viewing type, you can head on over to YouTube, search my name, Kerry Newhoff, and you will find this right there on the channel. We did a multi-camera shoot for this one. Uh, David using it in connection with a book he's launching called Faith for Exiles, which we talk about. And uh, yeah, if you actually want to see how the sausage is made on this show, head on over. You can subscribe and, of course, view for free. So audio listeners, get ready. Video listeners, head on over to YouTube. I guess that would be viewers, right? Okay. Anyway, here we go. My conversation with David Kinneman. Well, David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're actually together just outside of Toronto. Yeah, it's cool to be here in Canada. It's the best month to visit. It's August. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it's actually pleasant here, <laughs> right? I've been in California during the June gloom, which I never even knew about until... I think you and I spent some time together in June and it's like, it's just kind of gray. And Yeah, it's funny because people come to California for the summer and uh, the summer is actually one of the, it's it's the, the least favorable uh, time of the year. And, you know, we're in Ventura, which is right along the coast. Yeah. And so we get a lot of overcast days and uh, it's still pretty, it's not that cold, but it's uh, by comparison for sure. But it's, uh, they call it June gloom for a reason. Uh-huh. And your favorite month? Uh, October, uh, the, 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 really? the late, the late fall is really beautiful. Nice crisp, crisp mornings, um, but just super clear. And, uh, we're, uh, our offices overlook, uh, this, it sounds more august than it is, but we, we overlook the Pacific ocean. And, um, and so we can actually see like the islands is channel Island. So it's just, you can see all of the gra- you know, sort of the, the graphic detail on the islands, uh, from our offices. So it's just beautiful in the fall. That's great. And, um, You've got a brand new book out called Faith for Exiles. And strangely enough, it's good news, right? Yeah. Did you go looking for good news or did you find it? Or like, because so much of the stuff out these days, David, is bad news, right? It's like everybody's losing their faith. People are deconverting. The next generation is lost. And uh, I mean, you've sounded alarm bells in the past. Yeah. A lot of people have. Um, it's good news. So... Well, it is. I have to kind of take you back into history a little bit, a small small bit of my history that um, when Gabe Lyons and I first started working on Unchristian, I had this particular book in mind 
Uh, and then I, I, I said yes to Gabe, knowing that, um, which, which we were going to focus on 16 to 29-year-olds, the negative perceptions of the church, really looking at non-Christians. Um, and so when, when I said yes to working with Gabe on that project, uh, and it was an easy yes, um, it felt uh, as though this would help to set up an opportunity to speak about next generation issues. And so UnChristian came out, it really focused on the negative perceptions of young non-Christians. We're known for all the things we're against, we're hypocritical, anti-homosexual, judgmental. That was a very difficult book to write uh, and, and focused on a lot of the sort of the bad news. Uh, and then I turned to You Lost Me, which was around young lapsed Christians. So it was right. like, why do people lose their faith? And actually, again, I, I started that project. Uh, it was called the Faith That Lasts Project. I was gonna call it Faith That Lasts. And uh, it was actually so hard to figure out the things that are working. It was actually easier to think about the things and just to, to research the reasons why people were disaffecting. And so again, I kind of had to put off uh, the search for some of the solutions or answers. And so in this final project, uh, Faith for Exiles, what we did was we looked at the the most resilient young Christians, and it's called an exemplar study, where we're trying to figure right. out what what are the characteristics that sort of best hang together. Yeah, best exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's taken me ten years, ten plus years, to get to the story of the good news, um, and I'm glad to do it. I mean, it's yeah. like it's been it's been the most um, thrilling project because we've got to interview all these young Christians who are really on fire for their faith. And, and, and it's set against the backdrop of all the bad news because those things are also true. I mean, this generation is struggling with their faith. Many are walking away from faith. Um, and that makes the good news of these young, resilient disciples all the, all the, all the more, um, I think, um, encouraging. What year was UnChristian? Was that 07? 2007. Yeah, okay. So it's been 12 years. I remember when that came out and it felt... Um, it felt not obvious. Can I just put it that way? That um, you were one of the leading voices on, hey guys, wake up. Like we are seen as homophobic, angry, um, judgmental, pharisaical. And, and I think that was a little bit of a wake up call for the church. Now that was 12 years ago that that came out. It seems to me that that's just gone mainstream now. Right, like when you look at that, and those twenty, what twenty six to twenty nine year olds that you were pulling are now pushing forty. Yeah, that's right. How has that part of the perception changed? Has it gotten worse? Is it the same? Is it better? Like, well, as a researcher, the easiest way to say it is that it depends on who you ask, and I mean, which which segment of of Christians, non Christians of our population that you look at. Um, so, if you look at non Christians, my contention is based on the data that they are as negative as they've ever been and you know about christians about christians about yeah. evangelicals um you know the political climate hasn't helped uh because evangelicals are, are you know supporting trump um yeah. and so there's a the sense you know there, there's a sense in which our you know the, the perception of being too political it still exists that the church has become known for right-wing politics but among young christians they're struggling with those perceptions more and more and in some ways, what I'm beginning to see, we have actually a big, big brand new global study that's coming out with World Vision where we interviewed 25 countries, actually Canada, uh, all English speaking countries, uh, as well as uh, uh, countries from every continent. And so it's 18 to 35 year olds and we repeated some of the same perception questions. And actually the early read, we haven't quite baked all the data to sort of analyze it, but um, the early read is that young people aren't as negative overall as they were, when Unchristian came out, even mm. here, even in the States, 
But um, the problem is that there's a greater wall of indifference. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like, well, it doesn't even matter. They're, yeah, they're, it's kind of, you're kind of irrelevant. You're off our radar screen. Yeah, they're wow. sort of post-Christianity in, in the truest sense. They don't think about it at all. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon. But they're still very pro-faith. I mean, they're a very spiritual-minded generation. Right. Some really cool things that are coming out of that study as well. Well, and, and is that, you know, for another sort of larger trend, uh, you know, I haven't got any, you're, you're, you're the research guy, David, but, you know, it's not like people are becoming atheists in, in spades. What does that percentage seem to be these days? Is it holding steady? And people are spiritual or open. They're just not Christian. The nuns, right? The rise of the nuns, as you've written about. Where, do, where does that sit right now? Well, see, this is interesting because they are becoming atheists in spades uh, okay. among Gen Z and our, and our uh, younger generation in America, at least. Um, that's the highest proportion of atheists that we've ever seen. It's ne- nearly two out of five say they have either they're religiously unaffiliated or atheist. Uh, that's almost triple the national average. So 40% yeah. in Gen Z. Yeah. And, um, and so it's true they're becoming more atheistic, but at the same time, even those who might say they're atheists would sometimes say they're spiritual. Um, right. They, and that's just, what I'm trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, there's right? all these different layers to it. So it depends a little bit on where you put the microscope and how you study it. Um, I think this is why it's actually hard. I mean, it, it, any kind of industry is hard, but in in our market research trend industry, it's sort of like, well, yeah, that's true, and that's true, and that's true, and these, you know, like yeah. all these things can be true at the same time, uh, depending on how you focus your analysis. Uh, it's, you know, statistics lie, as people say, and uh, you know, so so it depends a little bit on what you're focusing on and how, as a researcher, you have to sort of disclose who are we studying, what are we trying to focus on, how are we trying to tell this story. What are some other trends? And we're going to dive into the research, the the good news part of this. And if you have a faith, what do you need to do to maintain it? Uh, you know, it's not all bad news. But what are some other trends that have got your attention these days? Uh, well, we've been looking at evangelism. Um, yeah. That was a, a big study this year where we focused on, um, you know, kind of tr- trends in spiritual conversations. The last year and a half, we've been working with a couple of different great groups, uh, Alpha, uh, and then a group called Lutheran Hour Ministries, where we were trying to focus on conversations in the digital age and how, how, how our screens, how our social connections are being reformed in the era of social media. And so one of the interesting findings was that 47% of millennial practicing Christians said they thought it was wrong to evangelize, even though 90 something percent, 94, 97% said that they thought that the best thing a person could do would be to become a Christian. So it's this real interesting paradox. Is that like a cognitive dissonance thing? or I think so. I think there's yeah. this uh, sense that um, they almost feel, um, they, they feel, I don't want to use the word embarrassed about their faith because I think that doesn't do justice to the, to the setting for, for millennials. And that's where I was saying earlier, like the, 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 uh, Gen Z and their generation, they are certainly living in a more pluralistic culture where the idea of missions has been almost like cultural imperialism. Right. And there's been all these, you know, televangelists at their worst um, have given Christianity a bad reputation and, you know, all the judgmental and hypocritical perceptions that we've been talking about. And so um, it's been interesting to talk about and see from the research, the, the, the challenges that this generation has and is feeling related to spiritual conversations. And at the same time, millennials are also the most active in talking about their faith, millennial young Christians, even more so than, baby boomers and others. So, okay, why, why, how and why? Well, I think what's happening is that, you know, the millennials that we interview, especially these resilient disciples, they say, listen, um, we want to be out 
talking about Jesus. He's at the center of our lives. Uh, we want to talk about him in our workplaces, um, in, in social media, but we want it to be real. We want it to not feel like there is a, uh, you know, a condo sale at the end of the right. pitch or, right. you, know, you know, I'm becoming friends with someone just to, just to put a notch on the evangelistic belt. I think there's a real sense that they, they see the problems that come with certain approaches or metrics of success for evangelism. And so they're trying to put, you know, a different, a different take on it. Um, and, and they're wrestling with, with a lot of that as well. Like, how do you effectively talk about your faith in the midst of a, of a, you know, sort of a bone crushing culture that everything is up for grabs. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a, an apologist for millennials sometimes trying to defend mm-hmm. them against some of the bad news that we sometimes have about uh, millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about generational divides. You've done some good research on that. How is the faith of a millennial or now that Gen Z, where, where do you draw the line at Gen Z? Like 1997-ish or? Uh, 1999. 99. Okay. Yeah. So when you look at them, they're in college right now. Right. Most of them haven't graduated or Right, or yeah, they're, they're, they're middle, middle of their college years is the yeah. oldest Gen Z years. So when, and remember that researchers and sociologists make up these things. Yeah. And uh, they make them up because it helps us to, you know, classify and cluster people. And by the way, the whole idea of generations emerged largely out of, uh, in the way that we understand them today, out of World War II. Uh, the baby boom generation was such a large demographic, you know, li- literally a boom of babies were born. Um, and so marketers had to be more efficient with their spending. Uh, in order to, to be, you know, they wanted to try to target a certain group of people. And so they became, you know, instead, you know, you would advertise to a particular segment of people, um, you know, whether it's radio or television. And so the idea of, of segments, generational segments as we have them is really around how do you appeal to a particular sensibility based on, uh, you know, chronological uh, or generational age. Right. And I think church leaders, you know, again, I, I'm a generational researcher, all the rest. Uh, but I sometimes get a little sick of it in the sense that to the extent that the church uses marketing segmentation in the way that we might, you know, advertise alcohol consumption. I mean, there's yeah. never an old person drinking, you know, a beer on the television commercial, right? right? right. It's, it's always at, it's always aimed at a, at a younger sensibility. Um, so I, I think that, that we have a lot to learn from generational theory, uh, but we also have to have a sort of a prophetic theological response to the fact that it's often derived from, you know, you know, just simply picking an, an age and, you know, out of, out of thin air and say, okay, well, we're going to call millennials starting at this age and ending at this age. And, you know, we're all actually human beings. The generations are actually all of us living together uh, at one time. Yeah. And some of it is, is it not, is just stage of life. I mean, you behave a certain way in college and then you start dating and maybe you get married and you buy a house and you get a career job and like people in their thirties are just different than they were in their late teens. Absolutely. I mean, stage of life is one of the huge storylines in the research. You can see that sort of bell curve of life and the, you know, the, the things that happen at the beginning of life def- being very defining. Um, and the one thing I would, you know, sort of add to that. And one of my great concerns for the church today is that we, we don't, however, uh, explain away the, the different changes of our culture as stage of life factors. Mm. So I, that's what I hear so often from pastors. Well, don't worry about the millennials or the 20 somethings because they're gonna come back when they have kids and when they're married and when the stage of life is more ready for us to minister to them. 
And what is happening is this whole generation, the rug is being pulled out from under all of the assumptions that we have. So about you'd say that's one. absolutely not true. It's, it's, not tr- it's not true enough that we um, simply rationalize all of the problems and opportunities that we have with this generation by simply saying, well, when they get older, it's going to all be awesome. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, I see, I see way too many church leaders sort of bury their heads in the sand about that. Uh, and so um, if you, you know, as you, like, I can't, I, if I literally had a dollar for every time I've been asked that, I would be, you know, a, bil- a billionaire because it's so often where people say stage of life. What well, stage of life is right. absolutely true. It's as true as the sun rising uh, that a person in their 20s is different than a person in their 60s in terms of just life perspective, experiences, you know, motivations, a whole, a whole, the whole thing. But the, the, the culture has uh, indubitably changed. I mean, fundamentally changed. And, and digital culture, our society, attitudes towards Christianity. And for anyone who's sort of tempted to say, well, stage of life, stage of life, you just, you're going to miss it, man. You're going to absolutely miss what's happening with this generation if you, if you think that's the, the primary story. So let's bust some myths then. So one of the myths that you've already hinted at is that at a certain point, you know, they're going to get married, they're going to turn to the church, they're going to have kids, they're going to come back to church. You and I did some research together, did some writing a few years ago, and we're like, ah, no, 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 with Orange. It's like they are not coming back to church just because they had kids. True? Uh, it's, It's true that they are not coming back to church just with kids. When they do, when in, in the, the minority of cases they do, they come back to church with a whole different set of perceptions, ideas. And they've, they've stayed away from church for longer, for more years. They've got a whole different social network than they would have had had they had a child at an earlier age or had they come to church with, with a child earlier on. So, so absolutely, that's one of the, the, the myths that we should bust is that just having kids, just getting married is an a automatic faith lifter. What about um, their life's going so well when they hit a crisis, when someone gets a diagnosis, when somebody close to them dies, they'll turn back to the church. They will turn to a set of deeper questions. It is a time when people sort of fundamentally think about who they are, what's going on, what is life all about. Um, suffering, human suffering is one of the biggest questions that this generation is asking uh, of the church, but they don't necessarily come back to church in the way that we would conventionally think about it. Yeah. That's the big thing. They're, they've got the questions, but the church may or may not coming through the church's door to ask those questions and to have them, uh, you know, addressed may or may not actually happen. Is that like the Google search bar confessional? They're they're going to Google it. They're going to look at alternate spiritualities. They're going to like where what happens? Then? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and Google. We talk about this a lot in Faith for Exiles. This is the digital Babylon thesis yeah. that it's become our counselor, our sex educator, our our BFF. Uh, and so Google searches, and, and I don't want to simplify it. I mean, if any of us, when we go through through suffering, it's not like you know you're going to Google how to suffer. Uh, but uh, the, the the thing is, and we've seen this in our research from from lots of different uh, millennials and parents of millennials and Gen Z. Uh, what one guy uh, in particular told me, he said, you know, I, I came across my daughter's search history, and she said, you know, she it was like signs that I'm depressed, mm-hmm. you know, and so she was watching YouTube videos to help self-diagnose, self-medicate, to understand her her anxiety and her depression. So there's all these other outlets for for question, for people's questions. And don't forget that we also really, um, we do, escape is our primary drug of choice today, yes. as, as North Americans at least, um, and entertainment, the sheer hours that we spend, you know, s- streaming television, playing video games, escaping the reality of our lives. 
uh, is, is also a way that we, we sort of drown out the pain. Uh, and so churches, this is, you know, one of the big, big trends is that people, even who are regular churchgoers don't come as often. They don't rely on the church as the primary source of their relational capital. They're re- they're fundamentally rewiring their relationship with the church. And that's even good churchgoers. That's not necessarily yeah. those who are, you know, seekers or who are non-Christians. So let me test out another premise or assumption that, that at least, you know, I think I probably have and other people have, which is, oh, when they have a question, at least they'll reach out to me or to someone they know. And community's really a big part of Faith for Exiles. Uh, but generally speaking, when you look at generational trends, are they more likely just to watch YouTube videos than to call up someone they know? Or do you find that people are going back to their family or their maybe I would say mentors rather than the friend that you're hanging out with on Friday night going, I think I'm depressed is different than saying, Hey mom, Hey dad, Hey neighbor, Hey youth group leader. Hey, you know, older person in my life at work, I'm reaching out to you. Yeah. I think um, human beings are fundamentally relational creatures. I think in the image of God, we've, we've, we've got that, that gift in our lives of, of being fundamentally relational. And so, you know, on the one we're talking about good news on the one hand, we see throughout the, the research that people fundamentally are looking for friends and looking right. for connections and relationships of meaning and that they in fact do that. And, and when they go through a crisis, they do turn to people they know as much as they would do anything else, that they, right. they try to find hope, solution, um, solidarity in, in relationships. So there's lots of really good indicators about that. Um, at the same time, people have, you know, deep brokenness and dysfunction and, you know, passive aggressiveness in their relationships. And um, I think maybe part of the answer to, to, to Christian leaders is that um, they don't turn to the church for those natural relationships as often as they, they used to do. Um, again, partly because what's happening is our social networks, our relational networks are changing. So look at the, the case of like youth groups, right? So um, when I was growing up in the in the 80s and 90s going to youth group, the youth group was for me like that was my tribe. Those were my those are my 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 friends. I remember having this sheet of paper. Um, I was sort of the, the the youth group organizer and you know oh, sort that's of a shock. community yeah, organizer. Really? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I had this whole paper with all the phone numbers. Uh, and, uh, and, and all the names of my buddies just front and back. I just like, I'd add new people on. And whenever we do an event, uh, whenever things I want to try to get people together, I would just make the calls. I was, I was the yeah. call list guy and I was making my phone calls, of course, to the home, to the, my friend's home phones. Right. And I was using my home phone, which was attached to the wall mm-hmm. and, um, <clears throat> I would dial through and we would, you know, get together the parties would happen, you know, like youth group events would happen, mission trips. It was fun. Um, today people go to youth groups for a very different set of reasons Mm. Uh, and they still see friends there, but the primary social network is social networks, digital social networks. You don't have to go to youth group to meet people, to have conversations after hours. You know, it's like, it was a very different kind of uh, dynamic. Uh, And so the youth group as a, as an indicator of our larger sort of Christian ecosystem is actually changing in its relevance to this generation. So, so what, what, how does it function today in your view or what, how should it function today? Well, those are two different questions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what it does function today is, and, and, and man, we're hearing this from more and more students is that it's functioning as a, a marketing department for the church to young people and their families. 
and we've heard this from, from young people. I, 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 I can't. Marketing department, like, what do you mean? Well, so we interviewed a young person who said, we, we were talking about the, about the relational network that they have, the relational connections they have within their church. Um, and she had sort of lapsed in her church attendance. Again, we're doing all this quantitative research, but we also do a lot of qualitative research to understand the trends that we're seeing in the quant data. And, um, and this young, uh, young woman who we're doing a focus group with, um, I said, did you have any good friends in the church, uh, people that you could really count on? I said, no, not really. So what about the youth pastor? I mean, that, that person uh, must have been there for you. And she said, no, no, he, he was paid to be my friend. And there was this, and I, I remember my just my my stomach tightening up hearing that. And I asked her to explain more, and she said, "You know, I mean, that's like his job description is to try to reach out to befriend people like me, so that we'll come to the church." Um, and just just yesterday, I was doing something here in Toronto. We were talking to some friends at a place called the Meeting House. Oh yeah, and um, and we were just having a conversation around the motivations they see with students with young people. And they said that, you know, they've heard themselves uh, conversations where young people think that even volunteers for the youth group are paid because why would anyone be interested in me uh, if they're not paid to be sort of the frontline staff marketing the church? So there is this real sense that this generation, they doubt sincerity. They doubt that people do this out of their own good, you know, sort of like good, good wishes for this generation. Um, So it functions um, you know, as a, as an extension of, of this, I mean, I've heard pastors say like, I pay for the youth pastor so that I can get families to attend my church. That's the economic bargain we make. Now youth groups are doing great stuff. I'm not trying to criticize that, but what they should do, what they could do, um, is to think about how do we come alongside these young resilient disciples and continue to grow them in their faith? How do we, how do we make sure that we're creating a whole structure of, relationships and experiences with Jesus and, and, you know, building, you know, wisdom and discernment in their lives and vocationally training them, uh, for life's aligned with the gospel. So there's a whole, uh, you know, this is part of the theme of this new project where we've learned there's a different sort of set of measures we could have to, to, to disciple young people into a life of Christ. Well, it's an interesting, you're, you're naming something I've kind of felt, but I haven't had language around it. I'm not sure that's unique to youth groups. Um, I feel, you know, as a teaching guy at my church and founding pastor, that there has been, and particularly in Canada as a very, you know, we're a decade ahead or two or behind in terms of post-Christendom from most of the U.S., that there has been a suspicion attached to church leadership, that people, people, there's a level of scrutiny and perhaps a level of cynicism that wasn't there a generation or two ago to the point where I'm pretty hesitant to tell someone I'm a pastor because I think it's immediately dismissive in a conversation like, oh, really, you couldn't get a real job or that's what you do or... Um, yeah, you, I meant to say this earlier when you yeah. asked me, uh, sorry to interrupt your, uh, your no. train of thought there, but when you were asking me about the relational network that people have, one of the things we found in a study called State of Pastors was that people don't look to the pastor as having particular expertise other than, you know, kind of wonky Bible, Bible-y things. <laughs> so they're not viewed as cultural leaders in the way they might've been in the past. Like we wanna hear from our pastors and spiritual leaders we're more likely to esteem entrepreneurs, creatives, um, uh, uh, professional athletes. I actually have this whole study I want to do called the soul of sports sometime where we'd actually say, I mean, like as North Americans, as people around the world, like sports has created a type of religious fervor. We look to our sports, 
sporting heroes as sort of our modern day, you know, saints. Yeah. Um, and uh, so pastors, you know, pastors, the view of pastors has declined um, as reliable guides. My dad, who's a lifelong pastor, um, has all these interesting stories about, you know, coming across people who are surprised to see him, you know, at, at Target on a weekend, you know, in shorts. Yeah. Uh, because they're like, well, like they can't imagine us. A You're a real human being. Yeah. You're kidding. Right. Right. Yeah. So how do you, what do you do with that reality? Well, I think there are some things that for us as pastors, we can do to rebuild our credibility, uh, in our communities and, uh, credibility for, um, for sheer credibility sake is not the goal, but credibility for the sake of the gospel is the goal. Uh, and, and so, um, I mean, one of the things that I think pastors and leaders could learn from those of us in research and market research is just the power of listening and understanding and hearing from people. Um, uh, because pastors are great communicators and love to teach and preach, uh, seven out of 10 say that is their one biggest love in, in doing pastoral ministry is to be able True. to teach. Um, so we're good talkers, but we're not as, as uh, effective, I think, as uh, as we should be at listening, listening to people who don't believe the same things we do or listening to especially younger generations in our churches. Uh, there's ways, I think, for us to rebuild credibility by, you know, think of the fact that most pastors are more likely to know the commute distance, uh, average commute time to the church uh, than they are to know the kinds of industries and, and the places where people work Monday through Friday. Oh, yeah. And so we could rebuild credibility by helping people understand um, how they could bring the gospel into their industry, whether it's education or science or technology. I'm convinced that's a huge opportunity for us to rebuild credibility for for churches. I think we can rebuild credibility by having people in our community um, up front and ordaining them for ministry and and sort of like we bring in a public school teacher to the front on a Sunday morning, pray for them, have them talk, share their testimony more and more. Like it's not about the pastor, you know, simply talking. Pastor in the band. Yeah, great, great preaching is more important than ever. It's just, you know, so like I, I'm so fundamentally convinced that preaching is one of the most important skill sets that a pastor can can uh, cultivate. And it's not the only thing he or she must do. And so there's like, how can we rebuild credibility for the sake of the gospel is an important question for for leaders to lean into. Boy. Yeah, the other the other thing that's changed, David, is um, people have Googled around whatever you're talking about. Yeah, you know, you used to get 20 years ago people going, oh, "I didn't know that. I didn't know that." And even if they hadn't heard it, they're going to fact check you. Is, right. is that is that true? Absolutely. In yeah. Our culture, we see it in the data. Three out of uh, it was 38 percent of millennials last time we looked at it say they fact check sermons. You know, as the pastor is is speaking. And I always joke that that's like if they're interested enough in what you're saying, because, yeah, exactly. because you know, now we have screens. I mean, I see it in my family and people around me. It's, it's not just true of young people. My, you know, my wife, I, it's like, oh, this is a little boring section. And I'm going to just look at, at Twitter right now. You know, it's like, yeah, like there's more distractive moments in our services. So we're, we're, we're awesome if they're fact checking us, as long as we're using good facts and, you know, like we can, we can be reliably fact checked. But the fact is that they're, um, you know, we live in a distractive era. That's one of the big challenges, right? People are just, they live in their own brains more and more. Uh, there's lots of social research that's showing that these devices are actually causing us to have shorter attention spans and live in our own kind of heads more. So trying to get through that as a pastor, as a communicator is is more difficult than ever as any kind of person of authority. Um, 
whether you're a teacher, a police officer, a, you know, a government leader. I mean, it's harder than ever to lead because people just believe they absolutely know uh, everything they need to know. And if not, it's in their pocket. And the, the answer is in, uh, you know, on their smartphone in their pocket. I realize this part of the conversation is just making a pastor's job description longer and more depressing. Um, but continuing in that vein, <laughs> my question- and We said this was gonna be an interview about good news, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, it's good news, sorry, we're gonna get there, guys. Uh, but w- I'm gonna write a blog post on this. It'll probably be live by the time this interview goes live. But one of the things I'm, I'm wondering about is whether we've lost the intellectual war in the pulpit, that our preaching just doesn't have enough good, strong thinking behind it. And, and that's been a challenge to me too. You know, I've cut my teaching- down from 48 sermons a year to about 30, 35, and we'll be cutting down even a little bit more next year, partly because the quality game has to go up. Like when I'm researching apologetics, I better be reading Sapiens. By I better be reading what other people are reading because if you're really reaching unchurched people, they've already read that stuff. They already understand it. And sometimes our simplistic defenses or our simplistic explanations or acute little pet phrases just aren't cutting it anymore. I mean, any comments on that? Any thoughts on that? And feel free to disagree. No, I, I 1000% agree. And I did the research and it's actually a thousand percent. Um, the, uh, <laughs> stupid joke, stupid research joke. Research uh, jokes. so, um, you know, the, the pedagogical war that we are in today for, uh, not just Great. truth, but for the ability to communicate uh, a plausibility structure. And what I mean by that is, can we give uh, not just this generation, but the generation that is alive, as we talked about earlier, like whoever is our, who are our intended audience, can we give them enough reasons that this stuff really makes sense? And so I think you're, you're onto something. Um, one of the contentions in the Faith for Exiles book is that we need to be uh, increasingly viewing the church as a learning community. Sermons are one part of that, but like a symphony, you don't just have you know the uh, you know the the percussion or the strings or a certain instrument. And I think that we're trying to create a symphony of learning for this uh, for our times. And the church is too much relying on sermons and sermon making as the pedagogical tool for that. And if you look at it, there's all sorts of other, I mean, just in Christian history, much less just, you know, the science of how people learn and epistemology, what we can know, uh, that um, there's all sorts of ways that people learn. I mean, through doing, through mentoring, through uh, classroom-based learning, through experiences, through conversations with others. And so this would be, if there's a single thing that a a pastor could do leaning into some of the data that we're collecting uh, about what works is that you have to do uh, a a sort of a pedagogical audit. How are people in our churches learning and what can we do to make that more robust? And we were talking about youth groups earlier. Mm -hmm. It sounded like I was really down on youth groups. And, And for certain reasons I am. I am, you know, like for the men and women who are in youth ministry or who are paying for, you know, or supporting youth ministry, like keep doing what you're doing, but but please lean into some of the things that we're saying. And, and for example, I think that youth ministry is, we're doing it like dial up ministry in a Wi-Fi world. Mm. So you can't do 30 minutes a week and expect for people to have a pedagogical structure, a, a, you know, sort of a plausibility of Christianity with 30 minutes, uh, you know, every every other week that they might show up. 
So, you know, what could we do through YouTube videos? Uh, what could we do through class classes that we could offer or courses? Uh, what could we do through internships? Or, you know, I think some of the best things about mission trips is that it's actually a learning environment where people can say, oh yeah, this Christianity stuff really does make a difference in people's lives. So can we, as a church, take a look at how, how it is that we're creating a learning community? Sermons are right. one of the essential, they're sort of the, the key threads through that, uh, but it's not the only way that people learn. And we have a lot of work to do to, I think, reinvent how people are going to learn uh, in this current environment. Well, and I, I suppose you you don't have to produce all that content yourself. No. Right. I mean, there's there is the Internet and even to put a curation together, a um, here are three links you might care about. Um, can be can be really positive. Any other myths we want to bust? And then I promise you good news. Uh, well, one of the other interesting things, and we, we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier when people, you, you said, do people you know go to a relational network when they go through tough times? The other myth that's really interesting is that not everyone, and actually a small minority, um, really want to learn. So this is part of the reason <laughs> why I think churches sort of struggle um, is that those who are actually have the fundamental capability. And there's a lot of um, a trans theoretical model for, for, for change. There's a lot of data, not just Barna data, but just you know among us geeks in the world that shows that most people don't change very much and they're not motivated to change. Um, and they don't do much with, with you know, like self-help books should have changed the world by now. Yeah. But yeah. they don't because most people don't know what to do with it. Um, and so, uh, th- this is, I think, another bargain that churches sometimes miss is that they they try to change everyone. They try to provide the cookies on the bottom shelf for anyone who might be looking for some sort of spiritual insight. But instead, we've got to do a better job uh, of trying to focus in on those who are really willing to learn mm-hmm. and are willing to grow um, and to give them tools because actually by helping them be more ca- catalytic, we have the opportunity of helping those who are the sort of, you know, couch potato, spiritual couch potatoes, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we kind of spread our, we sort of spread our pearls be, before everybody, uh, as, as scripture says, before swine. <laughs> uh, uh, You're more but, polite than Jesus. That's right. But um, is there a way for us? I think Jesus does this too, right? He, he, he's sort of like, if you have, for, 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 for him who has ears, let him hear, or, you know, uh, if you don't understand the meaning of this parable, then how are you going to understand these other deeper spiritual things that I'm saying? If you look at Jesus' life and ministry, he so often focuses on those, I mean, he focuses the majority of his ministry on the 12. And those that really wanted to walk with him through that, 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 that spiritual transformation journey that he led them through. And I think churches, uh, they, we cut this bargain because fundamentally we're we're built around how many people can attend how big our churches can get uh we think that there's impact by doing that but if you just said man what percent of people in my congregation in my youth group in my ministry are really here to learn if you're not here to learn it's not like i don't want you here it's just like i'm gonna try to do everything i possibly can to put the conditions around you and sometimes that's suffering and sometimes that's brokenness and sometimes those are things that are uncomfortable realities uh, if you're not here to learn or grow, then we want to try to like catalyze you. We want to get something happening in your life. We want to ignite something that's happening. And so for way too many Christians in America, in North America, around the world, we see this over and over and over. They are, um, they're, they're spiritual couch potatoes. And 
we have a lot of work, I think, to, to awaken them to something more. Is it a little bit like the Pareto principle, this idea of the 80-20 rule? That about 20% of the people, 20% of the things that you do are going to produce 80% of the fruit. And maybe there's some wisdom in targeting in a special way the 20% who are motivated or, or whatever the percentage happens to be and getting around them. And that's what you suggest in Faith for Exiles, right? It is. Um, I think it is something like that principle. Um, you know, you can you can sort of see that the majority of Jesus' effort, for example, was uh, around his intimate relationships with, with his disciples. Um, in this particular book, um, you know, instead of focusing on the, it's now 64% of young people in the States who grow up Christian, who won't be, who won't be active in the church in their twenties, 64%. And, and I think, um, we found in this study that, that 10% qualified as what we, we, we describe as resilient disciples. So they, we have a few characteristics of what a resilient disciple looks like. It's a person who, uh, is involved in a church more than just attending. They attend, but they also are involved. They believe in the authority of, of the Bible. And we have a pretty straightforward question about that. Does the Bible have things that lead to a meaningful life? Um, they believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, and they believe that their faith should be expressed out there in the world. We have a series of questions. We call them our exile statements because it's like mm-hmm. they, they believe they have one foot in the world, not just in the church. So it was a pretty, pretty low bar um, in our mm-hmm. surveys, but 10%. A one in 10 young people who grow up Christian qualified as our resilient disciples. And I think maybe 12 years ago when I started working on Christian, I would have been just sorely disappointed and depressed by the fact that it's only 10%. Yeah. But I think today I'm actually, um, I'm really encouraged by the fact that it is this faithful 10%, this sort of, uh, they're bursting with energy for the for the Bible, for the church. They're They're the ones who are trying, as we talked about, to reconcile re- evangelism in our very complicated age. And so they're the ones who are, you know, like we should be investing more and more energy into them because they're the, they're the leaders of not the future of today for the church. Um, and so I came away with this, Mm. this great, um, this great, like, like being so encouraged by the, the, the vitality, the spiritual vitality of these young Christians that I was interviewing, what called them resilient disciples, because the, the more pressure you put on them, like, you know, like, like Daniel in, in, Babylon from yeah. the Old Testament, the more pressure you put on, the, the stronger their faith seems to get. So that the good news is that, yeah, there are people walking away at unprecedented rates, but you look a little bit deeper, 10% of the kids who grew up in church actually have a resilient, admirable, strong, growing faith that we can build the future of the church on. That's right. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, God doesn't need a majority of people to do his yeah. work. Um, I mean, of course, I wish the number were 20%. Uh, of 90%. course, I wish it would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's start with where we have a real foothold, and uh, among whom, um, among a group of people, among whom uh, there's this real sense of like they're bursting with joy for yeah. the life of of, of faith. Um, their 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 relationships uh, are are there's one of the most fascinating findings in the book is that their relationships are so much stronger than every other person we interview. They they have people they say they can admit their deepest secrets. They have friends who are honest with them. They can they can be comfortable when they're alone. They say, um, and and there's all sorts of different evidence in the project about really like the gospel is working in the lives of these young people. I mean, like we found real evidence of the fact that they are they are 
they have fi- they find deeper joy in Jesus. They find deeper uh, um, uh, sort of their their soul's desire in worship. They find uh, greater intimacy in relationships. They're, they're, these people aren't perfect. These young resilient disciples, but there's a sense of like, okay, look, here's it's only ten percent, but these mm. these people really are exemplifying the kind of Christianity that we we all hope might be happening uh, in the lives yeah, of Yeah, names people. are springing to mind as you describe. And as I read the book, you know, names are springing to mind of people in our church and young adults I know. I'm like, oh yeah, that would be part of the 10%. So can you define exiles? Why, why did you use the term exiles? Yeah, I um, I've, when I did the book, You Lost Me, I felt like we discovered this group of people who um, they just hadn't just walked away from their faith. Uh, or from the church, they felt like one foot was in the church, one foot was in culture. They felt like they were um, they were viewed by society as extreme or irrelevant or you know crazy, but by the church they were viewed as like compromising and you know like you're you're watching that or you're friends with that person or you're interested in those things and um, and so the exile for me felt like the right phrase and I was. For, for the last 15 years been inspired by Daniel for the kind of faithful life he lived. So a guy that I, I just feel like we have so much to learn from his example. And so often it's been told uh, to us about Daniel that he was, you know, sort of this culture warrior and this prayer person of prayer. And, you know, Daniel in the lines that he didn't bow down to the idols of the age and he and his peers. But I think his early story, like I can't wait for, you know, some sort of movie adaptation to be made of Daniel's story because those early years as a as a as a as a, a young person, as a teenager, learning the language and literature of Babylon and becoming influential and trusting God's power and, you know, bargaining with his captors about the diet and all the things that would have happened. Um, it, it struck me as the kind of exile that this that this is this experience is happening. I mean literally just in the New York Times the last few weeks, there was a story about evangelicalism and young evangelicals in that sense that they are viewed by the society as as weird and out of out of step, but they're viewed by their fellow Christians as being you know compromisers. So, exile for me in the last as I've tried to help the church think about our current cultural moment. Um, I think we are in digital Babylon. I think we're in a new kind of Babylon where there's greater access, greater alienation, greater skepticism of authority. Uh, just a phrase that we came up with, but it seems to have like a, a, a potency to describe where we're at. And, and I'm convinced that without a return to a theology of exile, like we see in First Peter, like we see you know, in Jeremiah, um, without a theology of exile, we won't be able to raise resilient young people or really any of us. So in some ways, this is a book about the exemplars, the young Christians that we interviewed who are who are really trying to grow in faith. But it's also a story about why I think uh, recovering a theology of exile is very important for us as Christian leaders today, uh, how that's going to help us regain some of the credibility that we have lost that we talked about earlier. Well, and this is one of the reasons I just love our conversations, David, over the years is... Um, this idea of Babylon, I want to sort of parse digital and Babylon, digital Babylon together, but let's start with Babylon, right? So your assumption, if I'm reading your research, the body, not only this book, but your other research is uh, that America is not Christian anymore. And all you have to do is look at millennial and Gen Z data and you'll see it there. We're not Christian anymore. And, and we are in Babylon, like we've been exiled. This is not 
Jerusalem, you know, to use Old Testament language, we're, we're not living in the land we grew up in anymore. Is that the assumption under Babylon? It is. Um, throughout scripture, I think you see this, this story of from the Tower of Babel to actual Babylon. And then in the New Testament, there's sort of the spirit of Babylon. And Peter, Peter even uses the phrase, you know, of Babylon. He's referring to Which Rome. Is the Roman Empire. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so throughout scripture, Babylon is sort of the the, the system of man where power, prestige, pleasure, all the things that are uh, at war against the people of God, um, or at least the, the, the context in which the people of God have to live out their faith. So it seems to me that if we read scripture, Babylon uh, should speak to us as, I mean, there's even like, you know, sci-fi movies and other mm-hmm. things like, you know, Babylon or whatever. Like it's still like, it's a sort of, it sounds a, a bit ominous. Um, so I think Babylon is a rich has a, a rich tradition. I'm trying to help us wrestle with on one level. And when I'm talking about current Babylon, I'm not saying like you know American government or even any government. I'm saying that Babylon, you know, technology today is our current Tower of Babel. Mm. We are now really is our our God our, yeah. our reaching to the heavens. And we're actually seeing this in the in this global generation study we call it the connected generation. The study we're doing for World Vision that I mentioned earlier, twenty five countries. They're more likely to be like residents of this new digital age than they really are to be residents of their in, any particular nation or you know precinct in their particular okay, country. Park on that thought because this this is something that I think is not intuitive, and the older you are, the less intuitive it is to you. So, what do you mean by that? The characteristics of this generation, regardless of language and their aspirations and their the greater level of connections, um, um, make them very similar. They're more alike than and, and social research so, is. So, a twenty three year old in Vietnam, India, and Alabama, in California, are more alike, more like each other than yeah. they are like their their peers, or I'm sorry, their their predecessors. Um, would have been alike. Right. So there's more uniting. There's a monoculture. That's right. Developing generational. And, and what's interesting is there's a counter trend to this, which is nationalism and Brexit and, you know, sort of this, this hyper nationalism. And so in the midst of this monoculture coming, uh, coming about, um, and there's still many interesting ways in which a, a young person in Vietnam or, uh, you, you know, in China would be yeah. different culturally sure. than there would be a, a young American or whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's this, that's part of the Babylon we're trying to say. There's this, you, this there's this technology entertainment um, has, has created a new way that people are, are communicating and, and experiencing a sense of reality. And, and so the church is, is now living in and, and having to deal with the effects of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's an idea of digital Babylon and digital just being, I mean, the online world, right? Like, yeah. Um, and so, so another way to think about this is, um, I, th- I think there are cultures that are l- like Jerusalem in Scripture, where it's monotheistic. Um, everyone believes the same thing. Sacred Scripture is at the center of our common narrative and understanding. And I, and I think, even though America is a very pluralistic country and, and it always has been uh, in certain ways there's a sense of a Jerusalem mindedness among some Americans. Like we're, you know, city set on a hill. Uh, everyone believes in God. Everyone's Christian. Everyone should, you know, you can quote the Bible. Uh, but Babylon is a place where it's, it's pluralistic. Um, sacred scripture is just one voice trying to Many interpret gods. reality. Exactly. And um, I tell this little story in the book, but my daughter, Annika, 
on a, on a Christian school bus. Uh, she was going up to this thing called outdoor education and she was in the fifth or sixth grade and, and she and her friend started singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall on the Christian school bus. <laughs> And uh, go well. yeah, well, well, exactly. It didn't go great because uh, one of the teachers said, Annika, beer. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, is it supposed to be a 99 bottles of wine? You know, so, so she's, so, the, so, 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 you know, she's like, what kind of mixed drink are we supposed to sing about? Um, and so the, for me, the funny, the way I tell that story is that it's like, there's a Jerusalem mindedness of we, we try to protect ourselves. We don't think about alcohol. We don't think about alcohol. That's just not what we do in Christian schools. Um, that's sort of a, an indicator of the Jerusalem mindedness. And then in Babylon, you know, this sort of, it's a fair game. Everything is, everything is awesome. Everything is talk, you know, talkable. And when I talk about digital, the fact is that, you know, we're look, look at the example of pornography. Hmm. Um, it's an easy one to talk about because it feels like such a great example or such an easy example, but it, but it's, it happens to be a, a really true and true enough example you know, pornography is not new, um, age old, you know, yeah. human vice, but uh, digital Babylon provides us with instant access to pornography at the swipe of a finger that in the past, you know, teenage boys and young women, if they were so inclined, had to go to a, you know, the back of the weird building or, you know, like yeah. they had to surreptitiously steal it out or, you know, find their, you know, their crazy grandpas or uncle's stash or whatever. Right. Like you hear that. That's, that's how, when we do our interviews, it we, was work that, yeah, you, you had to work for it. And when we do our interviews about how people first were exposed to pornography, older generations say, I found the stack of the dirty magazines, you know, under the bed or whatever. Um, but this generation is so ubiquitous that it, they're they're being exposed to it at younger ages um, because they're just you know innocuously searching the internet and they're finding exposure to it. It's um, young men and women are almost equally yeah. uh, exposed That's to really it. Really changed in the last yeah, decade because it used to be most mostly uh, the domain of mostly of, guys, mostly yeah. mostly men. Um, uh, there is a sense of of its frequency and its potency and it's you know like so will the church have doing ministry in a dial-up world and a Wi-Fi, you know, do, yeah. doing dial-up ministry in a Wi-Fi world, if we don't have the structures to train and learn and help to think about grace-filled responses and training and thinking about our the faithfulness of our, of our lives, you know, when it comes to online pornography among a host of other topics, it's just, yeah. it's just one thing we could, we could talk about. Well, well, let's go a little deeper on that. I mean, let's assume 80, 90% of the people that are going to gather in any church on the weekend, uh, pornography use is a regular part of their life. Or it's not regular. It's been, been a part or it's some, 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 it's been, it's been part of their story in a way. It's a more universal experience for sure. Yeah. So what would you suggest is a better approach than just pretend it doesn't happen or just condemn it from the front? I think you should do a 52 week series on pornography <laughs> <laughs> and watch your church dwindle uh, to, to zero. No. Um, so this is why we have a whole different, we have to have a completely different reset. Yeah. Um, we have to talk about all of the different dimensions in which the world is encroaching into our very bedrooms and hearts and pockets on these lighted rectangles. And, mm -hmm. and so and that's the digital Babylon part, right? So for the first time in human history, we're, we're fighting, we're working at odds with uh, an overwhelming colonizer 
you know, to use a phrase that's loaded today, but, but these, these smartphones and I, I mean, there, we live in an incredible age. I would like, who would want to go back? We're able to work and do things and communicate and change the world through technology and, and healthcare and technology and science are changing our lives, uh, by and large for the better, but we're doing ministry and trying to figure out a theological Christian response to life in a completely new age. And, um, so I would say, I mean, you have to sort of rebuild your church to meet the demands and pressures of pornography. I don't have simple answers to that, mm. but some of the kinds of things you might do is among uh, among children to begin talking about the pressures and challenges that they're going to inevitably face, not, when, not if, but when. Um, you have to sort of like, you're starting to insulate, you're starting to build resilience. Uh, like, you know, what, what's going to happen when you, when you see this, what are, you know, how are we going to talk about this? How are you going to be able to seek and confess, um, you know, and, and, and get, get a forgiveness within the context of the church from a point of view of teenagers, we have, uh, you know, uh, we argue in this book, faith for exiles that we're seeing churches are starting to do like human sexuality, one oh one courses human sexuality 201 courses. And it's almost like, okay, we realize we don't want to teach every young person, you know, we don't, we don't want to teach an eight year old uh, about masturbation, but we do want to teach at age appropriate levels, how to think faithfully and, and appropriately and relationally about the challenges of living in this sexualized age. And some of it goes right down to the core of identity. Who are you and who are you in Christ? And you are not your body. You know, your body isn't a commodity. Things, things like that, that, that are increasingly countercultural and just not out there in the ether. And one of the ways to think about sermons then is that it should be, it's almost like maybe think about a pyramid, right? Where, where sometimes I think we think of sermons as the base layer of our communication ability within a church, our pedagogical muscle, right? Mm -hmm. So the better I can preach about it, the stronger our church is going to be. And I'd ask you to think about the, the, the preaching as maybe the capstone or one of the top layers. And there's all these other pedagogical, that's a big fancy word for how we learn other structures that are in place like courses and you know like if you hey if you want to watch a, a youtube video uh or we're going to give you a set of this is the curation thing we were talking yep, about earlier yep. about hey let's let's listen to these these sets of teachers or leaders on on life in the pornified age because i can't give you a, a, a sermon about all this stuff and you know we don't we, we don't try to call this stuff out every single weekend but we want we, we want you to know this church is here. We've got lots of resources. We're a learning community that can help you understand how to live life faithfully. And at the base layer of our pyramid of learning, there's all sorts of, of resources that we have available to you. Uh, to oh, that's you a really, you know, that, that's an interesting idea, David, because uh, you've got this graph in the book where you talk about digital consumption among resilient disciples versus others. And they're just consuming different content and shaping their minds. But the reality is, I don't know that you've ever had this. It was easier when there were like 10 channels because you just turned on the TV, you saw something. Now there's 300 plus there's Netflix, plus there's Hulu, plus there's YouTube and the internet. And sometimes I just get paralyzed because you don't know where to go or the algorithms, you click on something that's sort of okay. And then the algorithm gods just send you more stuff in that genre and That's it's right. Those, real which is part of digital babylon by the way the algorithm is the is the, the sort of the emperor of digital babylon it is and you don't have a lot of control over that um you know to to a certain extent and i don't know how to opt out of the right. algorithm right. so maybe it's it's that idea of church as curator church as suggester church as prompter 
And the sermon, I love the idea that the message goes to the top of the pyramid and that they're, because I mean, we are not dying for lack of content today. No, no, we're not. And, and I think you're right. That's where the role of a, a pastor, of a youth leader, of a, a church is to appropriately curate uh, this learning community and to think about it. I, I know that like the work of Orange, they've got this sort of the stages project. Is that, what's it called? What, yeah, yeah, phase. Yeah, fa- just fa- a phase. Yeah. And, and, and part of this notion is we, we really do need to work hard at thinking about um, somewhat of an older word or in, in high, high church, but a, a catechism type process where you're saying we're, we realize there's certain things at certain ages each of us need to learn and we're going to help curate the right kind of content for you. Right. And not just content because information alone isn't going to help every single person. Yeah, practices, rhythms, disciplines right. that are going to be helpful to your child at that age. And remember we were talking about the 10% who are these resilient disciples or the 80-20 principle. Yeah. One of the things we see over and over in the research is those that are the most interested in learning are finding that the church is too simple or has not enough content because we've tried to make it so easy for anyone to get access to the right kind of information. We're not actually curating it for the people that are the most likely to want to learn. No. And you think about, I I don't know what the average consumption of podcasts and digital content is, but it is much higher than your 30 to 50 minute message a week. And even, you know, in terms of this podcast, it's five years old now, I think five years old this week. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we made it. Woohoo. We're, we're in uh, kindergarten. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Here we are. This is water, by the way. And uh, it's still morning. <laughs> I thought you said it was 99 bottles of wine. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, I got kicked off the school bus, but David, <laughs> um, you know, it, there was a big debate even five years ago. The proverbial wisdom, as I sought advice, was 17 to 22 minutes. Uh, don't make it any longer. And now we're easily, most episodes are an hour, hour and a half long. And what surprised me is just the appetite for that kind of content has just soared in the last five years. But I always, I went with this because all my good conversations are never eight minutes and the sound bites get really frustrating after a while. So let's just another Here's another myth I think we should bust, which is this, I I think I've heard it uh, provocatively stated that it's a sin to bore a young person with the gospel. Or, oh. you know, like, 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 don't, if you're, if you're like, we talk to this, we kind of, ha- you know, yeah, yeah. high five each other as Christian communicators, like don't bore people. If you're boring, then, you know, you're, that's like worse than being whatever. Uh, but I actually think this is part of what we have to do as leaders. Listen, I'm not saying we should settle for, uh, for, 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 for me- mediocre communication just because, well, that's just what the culture, you know, wants. But if we're working so hard, and I think the, the phenomenon, as you're saying, of longer podcasts is a great example. People are hungry to, to learn. They're hungry, most people are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're hungry to find things that help them and that they're interested in, in, talk, in, 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 in learning or, or thinking through. But we, um, we dumb it down. And yeah, we do. And, and, and listen, for one of the um, saddest parts of the work that we do and there's a flip side that's very hopeful, but the saddest thing is when we interview these young people who are going off to one of the great universities, they're, they're gonna do a career in science or technology or engineering or math, or they're young entrepreneurs. I mean, even in the Steve Jobs biography, I mean, that, that guy went to Christian churches, you know, in his growing up years. He grew, he up, he grew up in a, in a Christian home. Um, and, and yet he came away with it being, uh, with Christianity being, with it lacking. And with, I, with with it with it not actually having a, pers- a a plausibility structure 
that allowed one of the great entrepreneurs of the last hundred years to believe that Christianity really spoke to his heart as a as an entrepreneur and as a creative and as a technologist. And part of what has happened is we have lost the hearts and minds of the most, uh, you know, the most talented people because we have we have we've we've fallen into the trap of saying, well, we're going to make. And we talked about this earlier about the intellectual or, you know, sort of like the work you have to do to create a great sermon. We we have we have to work really hard, um, and I think people like Tim Keller and others who've really tried to reestablish the credibility, the intellectual and philosophical credibility of Christianity. We have so much work to do that. And we interview young people all the time. And Carrie, it's just heartbreaking when we hear somebody say, you know, this just doesn't make sense to me. I, I like, I've been in sermon after sermon, after sermon, after sermon, and I, I don't believe it. It's just too simplistic. It's, it's so funny. I was pulling out my phone. Uh, I'm almost, I'm in the last minutes of a book. Why I thought you Buddha- were going gonna to Google like how to uh, end a podcast. That's really boring. Next question for David. <laughs> uh, nothing came up. Um, but on Audible, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. So I'm trying to get in the head. I'm doing a, a series next Easter called Plausible Alternative, where I'm actually making Christianity seem like a plausible, plausible alternative. Like, I know most of you don't believe this, but it's plausible. And I want you to look at the plausibility. Now, obviously, I don't believe it's just plausible, but, you know, we're at that point in a post-Christian culture where people think, oh, you're ridiculous or sentimental. Right. To, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But at the very end of why Buddhism is true, it's this real deep dive into, into psych, evolutionary psychology and Darwinism and so on. So very different set of beliefs from what I believe personally. But at the very final chapter, he reveals that he was raised in a Southern Baptist, evangelical, conservative church, that he walked away from Jesus, has embraced Buddha. And I'm like, yet another like it, it just goes on and on and on. And part of me is like, like a lot of what he's saying, it's actually John Ortberg, who we were talking about before we started recording. John and I have had conversations like some of meditation is actually part of a Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Like it goes right back into the Old Testament. It goes right into the monastic period, the desert fathers, et cetera. Like this is part of our tradition. And we are just losing because we're into sound bites and little clips and superficial thinking and how's this going to look on Instagram? And I mean, I'm not, I'm not into, uh, you know, what I, what I think I'll, 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 I'm testing theories on you, but uh, I'm I'm already working on my 2020 trends, taking notes, but you know what I think is disappearing is the middle that, and when you talk about digital Babylon, you talk about the resilient uh, millennial and Gen Z's who have a strong and vibrant faith even in my preaching, certainly in this podcast and some of my other writing, like my blog posts aren't short. We get crazy amounts of traffic on the blog. They're not short. They're like two, 3,000 words. And I'm actually going deeper. I'm actually trying to nuance thought and more complex thought and bringing more research into my messages. And it seems like it's, it's almost going higher on the shelf. Like, like Keller. Keller, I think, did a beautiful job of being accessible, but not simplistic. Right. And, and there seems to be a growing appetite for that. And then, yeah, if you're going to have a 20-second YouTube video or a clip that shows up on Instagram, make it memorable and make it good and, and make sure it resonates. But I think the middle is disappearing where, you know, you see this in retail. The middle what? Middle everything. Middle in our culture is disappearing. So you look, I mean, that's true of the middle class, but it's also true of malls. What's, what's thriving? High-end retail is thriving. Uh, but the middle and the bottom, like Walmart, because of low prices, continues to expand, continues to do well. 
And so that whole middle just seems to be disappearing. The middle of communication, the middle of our church service is good, but not great. Uh, Our thinking is fine, but I'm not really working very hard on it. I I just wonder if that's what's disappearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, it sounds, it sounds plausible. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Plausible alternative. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I like that idea that you can actually shoot higher in your thinking, shoot higher in your argumentation because the rest of the world is. Yeah. It seems to me, um, that there's one, um, there's, there's one theme that I've been, uh, uh, sort of ruminating on that part of the reason that our, our churches are struggling is because if, if that's true, that the middle is shrinking, um, or, or, you know, that there, there, maybe there never was a middle, right? Like everyone <laughs> yeah, is sure. unique in a certain sort sure. of way. And so trying to aim for an average is itself like that's, you know, we are absolutely becoming a more nicheified culture Yeah. and people are, um, uh, I heard described as a, like a, 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 we're becoming a technocratic kind of world where everyone is being trained for a particular kind of work. So one of the things that I think is, is, is true, uh, about, uh, our current structures of, of church-based ministry, and this is a bit of a thought experiment that's just been the last few weeks. So maybe this is helpful. Maybe it's maybe it sounds overwhelming, but I've been I've been thinking about the fact that in a particular um, area, we're here in Toronto, we're in Elmira, uh, mm-hmm. uh, here in in Canada. If there are a certain number of people that are going to go through uh, a high school or secondary education, you know, they're going to graduate from high school. Is that what you call it here? Yeah, uh, high school. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in Ventura, there's something like 10,000 students every year who graduate high school. And if the church, if the Christian community of Ventura, to use my hometown uh, as an example, if we were convinced that we had to help those 10,000 students, there's no real average student. Yeah. There's no middle student. Right. And so I'm convinced that part of the problem we have in raising resilient disciples is that in our congregational ways where we're really focused on who's going to show up on our weekends to be a part of our programs. We're not actually thinking about our responsibility to the city as a group of Christians, whether it's entrepreneurs, pastors, uh, other kinds of leaders, because it's true that each of those 10,000 students are going to come away having either been exposed to Christianity or not exposed to Christianity, having you know, become a resilient disciple or have the conditions ready for them to become a resilient disciple or not. And I, I sort of think about like, how could we mentor? Um, and, and, and I have, we have one of the, one of the concepts in this faith for excels book that is a distinguishing factor of these resilient disciples is vocational discipleship. Yeah. So those 10,000 students have a vocation. They have a calling. They're going to go out into university, uh, community colleges, uh, trade schools, mission fields. Yeah, calling is not just to ministry. No. Um, and, and what if we were to take the people group, what if we saw our mission as a group of churches and Christians, not just to try to grow our churches, but to prepare students from birth to 18 or from 18 to 29 to, to, to really experience, to, to talk, to, 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 to go through um, a set of lectures on the plausibility of Jesus. Right hmm. to go through a, a set of lectures on uh, living living um, in a way that the corrosiveness of pornography uh, can can you know not attach itself to to you. Yeah. Uh, uh, what if we gave them a set of diagnostic tools and process to help them figure out like what if we ran you know 
like coding camps, but they're run by Christian coders or, you know, design schools. And so I think there's this opportunity for us to view, um, to view the, the people that God calls us to serve and to love and to disciple in a more, um, I want to call sophisticated, just in a more like current way. That is that if, if we're trying to see each of these young people, uh, and by extension, their families and the others we're trying to minister to, not just as like, hey, could we figure out a way that we could run a program that gets you here to come right. to youth ministry? But we're gonna we're gonna do our very best to identify not just some average student who we can communicate to and you know make it really like like a like a really powerful talk, but we're gonna actually find a way to vocationally disciple you into your calling and to understanding the reality of whether God might be calling you to a kind of work then. Like that would be an incredible vision, yeah. Uh, and I, I just think that the Lord is we're 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 so ready for some new ideas about how to do ministry in our communities today. And that that's just an example of something I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. It's a great thought. So I want to talk about the five characteristics of resilient disciples, and I want you to kind of go through them, just the thumbnail of them, because I know you know if you're going to have fifty under thirties you have five of them in your church. If you got 500, you got 50. If you've got a thousand, you got a hundred, right? So uh, just to think through that. That's a, that would be the percent. So 10% of, mm-hmm. um, of of all young people who grow up Christian, but in a typical church setting, it would be about 20, Well, it might be 20, higher, right? Think, because it includes because, the ro- walkaways. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're right. You're right. These characteristics you're going to go through, Mike, are they descriptive or prescriptive or both? Like, do they describe or they say, hey, if you do these five things, you'll, you'll get a few more of them or you help them along? They are descriptive for sure. Yeah. Um, I believe that they're prescriptive. The nature of social research is that we can't say with, you yeah. know, any kind of certainty, but with some plausibility, we can say that, uh, that these have, uh, they're very likely to have some prescriptive power. So if you do these things, you're likely to create a little more of an incubator that, and at, the, and at the very least, uh, you should think about them as guidelines and guardrails for the kinds of um, of conditions that seem to grow or seem to be consistent with people who are growing. Uh, you, you know, so like Jesus talks about the the soil, uh, right. he gives the parable of the soil, and you know, for anybody who's a farmer or uh, you know really really has a green thumb, you know, like the pH of the soil. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the chemicals that are in the soil make a difference. And so these are, these are, in my view, the way to making sure that we've got the right conditions in which souls can grow. I love it. Okay. So walk us through these five conditions. Well, and as I say, this is, um, we've been working specifically on this about the last three years, but it's something that I've been working on for the last 12, because this sort of started as a project that, you know, as we began to work on, on Christian and then you lost me. Um, we were trying to find this, you know, sort of some of the uh, the silver bullets or, or magic bullets of uh, of discipleship, and of course there aren't any formulas. But um, we find these five characteristics of these resilient disciples, and and as you can see in the project in the book, there's just this their, their lives are so much different in these five ways from other young people, even those who we call habitual churchgoers. Uh, but they have an intimacy with Jesus. Number one, they have a, a, a level of cultural discernment. Number two, they, they, they sort of think Christianly as much as they, they love and have an emotional connection to Jesus. They think Christianly. Number, number three, they have meaningful relationships yeah. in the church. And, and a real easy way of, of thinking about that is they actually want to be in, in and among churchgoers. They, they say, I want to be, we heard this so often in our qualitative research, I want to be like 
you know, this person that I know who's the most generous Christian I could imagine. They, they want to emulate those lives. Those are the kind, that's the measure of meaningful relationships. Number four, they're vocationally discipled. And number five, they have a countercultural mission there. They actually exemplify higher levels of sacrifice and uh, service, and they have a very different kind of way of life. And they, they're, they're countercultural in that way. So can we can we do a little more five. into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah of that'd be great. I'd I'd love to. So go back to one intimacy with Jesus. They have this relationship. Well, one of the very first things I remember being struck by as a Barna researcher. I started in '95. Yeah, um, straight out of college. Uh, so it's been almost 25 years. Uh, in February, uh, it'll be it'll be 25 years, and um, the first data point that I remember just like thinking, how is that possible? Is that seven out of 10 Americans say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life. Yeah. And that number has dropped a few percentage points, but it's still in the upper sixties. And I, I still, to this day, I mean, in, in Canada, around the world, uh, in Christianized the Buddhism you know, guy, he had done it too. Yeah. He'd made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was like, how is this possible? Um, and, and, and even the phrase that is still important in their life, right? Oh, but, yeah. but, it, but, it, but it's, but it's even that is crazy because he might have answered. I mean, the, the, the Buddhist person you're talking about might have answered, yeah, it's still important in my life. And Buddha is as well. Yeah. But <clears throat> I was like flabbergasted, which is a word we should use more often. It is a great word, David. Uh, flabbergasted to see that seven out of 10 people say they've made a commitment to Christ. So it's easy to say you're a Christian and even a Christ follower, but it's very hard to have joy in Jesus, to say your deepest identity is centered on the things he says. And, and a good example of what we found in the research was um, that resilient disciples believe that Jesus speaks to them in a way that is personal and real. They actually have a conversational relationship with God that's very distinct from others. So I say, and we argue in the book that we've introduced a brand Jesus experience and that people are actually and sometimes following a you know a, a culturally uh, created Jesus rather than the real Jesus. So we've got a clear religious clutter, mm-hmm. and Jesus Himself seems to do this. He has to sort of usher aside the religiosity, the things about religion that say you know the, the the practices or the you know the rituals or the or God is found in doing those things. Uh, so, so this idea of a experience with Jesus is is sort of the first and sort of starting place for these young. So you've winnowed away the the fluff and the uh, the religiosity around it, and your criteria, the way to measure this, you would say, no, this appears to be an authentic personal relationship with Christ. And again, finding the right words for that are important because it's so easy in our yeah. churchified, Christianized, you know, like like. And so, I think the simplest way, and, and, and by the way, part of the reason. Uh, finish the sentence. Um, the easiest way to measure it is: Do people believe that Jesus is speaking to me? Do you have a conversation? Can you can you do you live your life with the sense that God today has something new to say to me? And um, that's the best way we can measure it. And um, it's and it's hard work because because in Christian Christianized and in post Christian cultures, there is so much. It's easy to say you're Christian, but you don't yeah. you don't always find it. We've given a lot of of the questions in our in the book that we've used, and they might actually serve as a real helpful way for you as a church leader to say, oh, okay, are, are we actually creating that kind of culture? Oh, that's great. So that's in the book. That's right. Okay, good. Number two. 
cultural discernment. And this is that learning community thing we talked about um, that the Bible actually applies to, to how we live our lives in our te- terms of technology, sexuality, um, uh, money, uh, that, that we've actually learned some rhythms of discernment. Um, we don't just teach people what to think. We teach them how to think. Right. And you say, I wrote this down in my notes, you know, there's some cultural values from Western culture today. Sex is for my personal fulfillment. Self-denial is unhealthy. Uh, Something's true. If it feels true, follow your heart. So these are people who look at values like that and go, "Mm, I don't, I don't know whether I buy that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have a more discerning, um, capability of saying, does this make sense in light of scripture instead of does scripture make sense in light of culture? Okay, so good. So they've got some cultural discernment. We spent a lot of time on that. Number three uh, is meaningful relationships. Yeah. And now you and Kara Powell, you keep coming back to this in your research. And I know you're good friends with Kara. Kara is awesome. But her her research at Fuller always just seems to always amplify meaningful, even intergenerational relationships as being key to, um, yeah, to someone's relationship with God. Absolutely. With and I think she has this great phrase, warm is the new cool. Yeah. Right. And so um, relationships are, are critical, this, this emotional climate, um, you know, do people feel loved and accepted? And, you know, in what ways do they feel like they can, they can be their best selves? As I said earlier, do they, they actually want to be there? Do they uh, want to emulate other people in the community? Uh, like, like I want to be like, you know, this, this friend of mine, David Metters, like I, like I, yeah. I tell the story in the book about him. Like, like, like he's a guy that's like, man, that guy is an awesome Christian. I want to be like that, that guy. He, per, the way he prays, you know, it's just like when he, I hear him pray, I'm like, he is actually speaking to God right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, you yeah. hear other people pray yeah, and they're like, they're, you know, you know how it is like when, when people pray and they're like, they're praying really so that other people in the room hear them. Yeah. Correct. And they're like going through in their mind the things they forgot to say in the sermon or the things that they, for, you know, and it's, it's a little bit of a posing. They're, they're posing for the camera. And and then you hear other people and you're just like, oh my gosh, that we, we just, God, we just were talking to God right there. And yeah. so that, so think of that. So how often do we in our churches make sure that those who come to pray in public, you know, like, like, no, they, they are, they are praying in private too, because you can tell when they come to pray, there's no posing and young people are watching that. And so yep. those are the kinds of things that the, the emotional climate, clear the stage, another, right? exactly. Preachers. Another thing uh, we saw on this was um, they, that these emotional, meaningful relationships, young, young people are taught how to deal with the disappointment they will inevitably have with other Christians, with the hypocrisy of Christians and with disappointment with leaders because you know we, we live in a broken with that's broken through world. in relationship exactly and so yeah. so i think that's they help young people develop the muscles understand you're going to come to a place where you feel man these leaders have let me down yeah. and uh they, they say hey you're gonna it's not if but when you find yourself saying that christian is that really a christian yeah. of course that person is a hypocrite because welcome to the club we all, we're all hypocrites you are too and so um, the emotional climate is one in which we try to help people deal with that. And that's more important than ever because this generation, they're so comfortable on social media. They don't always know how to deal in real life with the issues that are going to come up in community. Okay, next one. Vocational discipleship. So right. I'm so excited we about this one on because this. it's yeah. such a, like, could we vocationally disciple um, not only those students in our church, especially those in our church, but also those in our community. And I think it's a great opportunity. You know, we run, we churches around the world run vacation Bible schools. Right. Could we do voc- <laughs> vocation, vocation Bible, Bible schools? schools? 
That'd be fun. But seeing seeing uh, the marketplace as a place for mission as much as anything. Um, not not yeah, just the and, marketplace, the, the heart of students that they believe they've been created to do something and mm-hmm. that the church actually cares about their their vocational destiny. Okay. That the Bible actually has insights for us. I mean, the, uh, one of the one of the amazing stories I remember coming to hear, hearing was the guy who designed the PNC ballpark in Pittsburgh. Oh yeah, um, beautiful park. It is. It's amazing. Yeah, it overlooks the city, and um, he's a Christian. Um, and and he said that the verses in in Exodus thirty four and thirty five, yeah. where we talk about uh, the craftsmen who mm-hmm. made the tabernacle. And the designers who are gifted by God, as the scriptures say, to do these these craftsmany things, um, that it saved his faith. And and this is my whole contention: if we're going to wow. develop young resilient disciples who are designers and and are artists and science scientists and lawyers and doctors, uh, we've got to find the way to connect them to the fact that the Bible actually cares about you and who you are created to be um, vocationally, not just your soul, not just the. Yeah the eternal disposition of your soul, but we care about, um, you know, you know, your giftings and the church is going to help to, uh, to cultivate those as well. Great. And number five, so we wrap up. Yeah. Vocational, uh, uh countercultural mission is the fifth one. Yeah. And this was, um, it, 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 it's a sense of, of being developed as, as part of a team, um, learning about the needs of the poor, living differently from cultural norms. Like you're living uh, sort of life on mission that the sort of like it's, it really is this outward expression of how we live and, and that, that those choices we make in the marketplace and with our pocketbooks and with our donations and with our uh, sets of activities together, those all matter. It's like, it's the sum total of us coming together to be the church. And so we found some super encouraging things uh, there as well. And yeah, like overcoming, I, I know you wrote in the book that when you have these five characteristics, you kind of push past the entitlement attitude of our culture, the it's all about me and self-fulfillment and you live to a bigger mission. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the interesting th- conclusions that I have come to th- from this is a lot of church leaders say, you know, so how do we create a church that appeals to young people? And first, I think if you, if you did these five things, if you embrace these five practices, your church would be stronger. I mean, for me as a dad, I'm trying to do these things in the lives of my kids to put these five characteristics around them. But one of the things that I think for me has been really helpful is, it's not just like, how do you build a program that embodies these? How do you find the people who are already embracing the resilient disciples who are already embracing these kinds of practices and platform them more? Right instead of just figuring out how do we attract them and, and make our church appealing to young people. Um, you know, as you said, as you started this little part of the segment here, you know, you have young people um, in your church uh, who are resilient disciples and how can you find ways of giving them real runway uh, to do what God is calling them to do, as opposed to just like, how do we get more young people here? How do we actually turn the tables and find a way to, to support what God's already doing in the lives of these young leaders? Well, the book is called Faith for Exiles. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, uh, here it is. And uh, obviously you can get anywhere books are sold, but where's the easiest if people want to drill down? Is there a website you'd send them to? Uh, Yeah, faithforexiles.com. Okay. And uh, Mark Matlock, who's my my co-author on this, he's a a former executive director of Youth Specialties. He's spoken to more than 1 million teenagers in person. Uh, So he's got a lot of practical ideas that he uh, put in through the book. And we've also have a couple of e-courses, one for parents 
called Raising Resilient Disciples. Oh, great. And one for pastors called Making uh, Resilient Disciples. So we, we have these great exercises you can do as a, a church team where you're actually, you go up to a board and you sort of rank how well you're doing each, each of each of the people, each of the people on your team we could, could rank how well you're doing on these five practices. And we've got these different sort of facilitating tools that we're that we've done uh to help you kind of work through whether you're a parent whether you're a pastor um okay how do i bring this home what do i what do i do um they're not simple solutions they're not like formulas they're really more of a way of thinking about the kinds of conditions we would want uh, to create that soil that rich sort of like you know, a robust soil that's going to grow these deep roots um, and as i said you know for me the most common thing that I get asked about when I speak to pastors or leaders is, man, you're talking about my 20 something kid. Yeah. And um, for me as a dad, um, you know, this like the rubber meets the road. I, I tell a lot of stories with my kids permission yeah. of the things that we're learning together and things that I'm trying uh, with them. And I mean, like how lucky, how lucky are my kids actually to have me as their dad? Yeah, I've how got, fortunate are I've they, got, David? I've got all the data. <laughs> And they get to be they get to be practiced upon. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so, but it, it it should. I hope the study uh, takes us closer to some things that are more at the heart of uh, of what it means to be you know Christian in our current culture. And even you know having heard all these stories from unchristian and you lost me of people's disaffection with faith or disconnection with Christianity. I'm hopeful that this book actually might be really helpful to young Christians too who are saying. Yeah. How could I really, what is, what is important today as a Christian? You know, my friend Gabe Lyons and I do the book Good Faith as part of that too, that effort to say, let's try to write some things for our own kids. Um, and I, I had my daughter quote back that book to me about a year ago. She said, you know, you write this. And so here's a chance for you to practice it. Uh, so I know this next generation, uh, at least my kids are paying attention. And so that's, um, that's part of my hope in this project is to give people a sense of where the brightest lights are and could we turn our attention rather than on all the the points of disconnection to some of the things that are really working. Well, as always, this could have been three hours, so we'll just line up the next episode now. David, this is this has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kara. I sure appreciate your friendship and getting to know you and Tony and just the ways you've loved, for, loved on us and me um, during the last couple of years has meant a lot to me. So I appreciate the interview, but even more your friendship. And I just love David. And I promise you, this is one of the greatest joys of doing this podcast, especially for five years, is most of the people you talk to are nicer people than you would imagine. And David is certainly one of them. I've gotten to know him and his family and just just great. And you're going to want more, I would imagine. And if you do, we have transcripts. Again, this one's on YouTube. So I know the vast majority listen via audio, uh, but we are getting more and more into video these days. So you can watch this episode uh, transcripts are available along with show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 288. And we're back next week with a fresh episode. I'm so excited to be bringing you Tim Lucas. Tim is a lead and founding pastor of Liquid Church. Really a pretty sensational story. They are reaching young adults where nobody is reaching young adults right now. In New Jersey, uh, just outside of Manhattan, Tim's a really fascinating leader and a lot of fun too. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. It's been transformational because they not only highlight the good, flag the bad, but they, you know, kind of redline the ugly. And what has happened is, gosh, when I'm doing a, you know, message on relationships or marriage, she is able to speak in with nuance and practical examples that I just simply don't have. And it right. reaches, it, it just drives the message so much more deeper. 
having an Indian pastor help me add nuance where I'm talking about racial reconciliation. But hey, here I am in kind of the dominant culture. Um, one of the big secrets I have with speaking with folks and reaching uh, people who, again, post-Christian, just far from God, I always make sure I have a brand new Christian or kind of a baby believer, you know, who, who always calls me on religious jargon. Again, if you subscribe, you get that absolutely free. And uh, I hope you do. If you haven't subscribed yet, it's also our fifth anniversary. Remember, we are giving away to nine listeners, five books from any podcast alumni. We're going to stack your library. We have, are celebrating 9 million downloads. Uh, next week, it all comes together. And so the way you can win is to follow me on social. Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on Facebook and Twitter. And in the meantime, if you want a free website, head on over to prowebfire.com and use the coupon code CARRY2019 at checkout to make sure you get that when you subscribe to their new web service. And every church needs a better website. And also, if you really want to get in on the savings that's happening through Remodel Health, you got to head on over to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Download your church buyer's guide for free. This is a way of doing health care that's better for your employees and so far, for listeners, has put $625,000 back into the mission in savings by going with Remodel Health. They use technology and so on to help you. So remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to learn more today. Guys, thank you so much for making this such a rewarding journey over the years. Uh, it's been great. The best is yet to come, and we're just kind of getting started. And I really hope this episode has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.